thank you to the Summer Foundation for inviting us to speak today. So it feels quite apt talking about fatigue and sleep problems when you have to get up so early for a morning breakfast. Hopefully this doesn't put you to sleep. Um, so I'd just like to start with uh, getting a sense of who's in the audience and um, just wondering if you can put up your hands if you do treat or help people with sleep and fatigue problems in your work. Okay, or most of you, great. And also just wondering um, who of those use CBT as part of their work? Okay, a few, not many, okay. So we actually, um, Dana and I ran this as a workshop uh, at a brain injury conference earlier this year and um, after the, the workshop we had a few people come up and give some feedback and some nice feedback. Um, but interestingly, the, the person who was most excited about the workshop was the tech guy in the back of the room who was doing the slides. Um, so he said he'd always had sleep problems and now he had some techniques to go home with. So um, we hope this is actually useful for your clinical work, but if it's helpful personally as well, that's great. Um, we work as part of a broader team. Um, so I just want to acknowledge uh, the rest of our, our research and our clinical team. Uh, so particularly uh, Jenny Ponsford and Sylvia Newen, who have led the research side of this, um, and Kate Frencham, who is uh, one of the neuropsychologists who delivered uh, the therapy, along with Dana and myself. So fatigue after brain injury, like I'm sure this is what you see a lot in your work. Um, but what is it? There are lots of definitions, um, but broadly speaking, fatigue is a subjective and usually very unpleasant uh, symptom that people experience. And it has a, a range, it can range from tiredness to complete exhaustion. It's both mental and physical, and I think um, when you talk to a lot of your clients, you'll notice that they talk a lot about the mental fatigue, and that's something that they really notice as being quite distinct from how things were before. And this really just interferes with their ability to function, to sustain or initiate activities that they want to do. And I quite like this description, which is from a therapist who works with people with brain injury. So she says, the fatigue that they experience defies description, going far beyond and far deeper than anything a person with no brain injury would consider as profound exhaustion. So when you talk to people about their fatigue, they just say it's just so overwhelming and a sense that people can't really understand how bad it is and something that they've never experienced before. In terms of sleep problems after brain injury, these are really quite wide ranging. Um, from formal sleep disorders such as insomnia, which simply is difficulty falling asleep or maintaining sleep. Um, hypersomnia, which is an abnormal need for, for sleep, a, a lot of sleep. Uh, sleep apnea, narcolepsy, but also just general sleep complaints that essentially people uh, find it hard to fall asleep or um, they wake up too early, um, their quality of sleep is not very good, um, partners talk about snoring. So lots of different complaints uh, that people will, will report. And what we know, and I'm sure what you know, is that it's very common. So we're looking at at least you know, a third to a half of people with brain injury who will report problems with fatigue or sleep. And often they will report having both problems. So um, our groups of interest are people with traumatic brain injury and stroke, but this applies to other ABIs such as MS. So these uh, problems are far greater than what you would see in the general population. And in terms of the underlying causes of these problems, this is really a, an area of growing knowledge and development. So there are proposed particular regions of the brain that are important for sleep function, for arousal, 
um, neurochemical systems such as melatonin um, and physiological processes. Um, so I'm not going to focus a lot on this, but really this is an area that we're trying to understand a bit more. What we also know is that there are a lot of secondary causes of uh, fatigue and sleep problems. So problems such as uh, anxiety and depression, chronic pain, the cognitive problems themselves. So these issues which often do co-occur uh, after a brain injury um, often can contribute or lead to people having poor sleep uh, and fatigue during the day. Now where this becomes important is that if we're trying to treat these issues, it can be important to try and work out how we treat these secondary factors because if we can improve these other things, then we might better improve their sleep and fatigue as well. And so this is where we think uh, CBT as a treatment approach um, shows some promise because it has shown uh, that it's effective for treating these other issues. So to date, there, there is no uh, evidence-based or guidelines around the best way to treat uh, fatigue and sleep problems after a brain injury. So medications uh, have been trialled for, for both of these issues, um, but the efficacy has been limited. Um, and there's also uh, issues with side effects from these medications, particularly cognitive side effects, which obviously if you have a group who already have cognitive problems, the last thing you want to do is introduce more uh, cognitive issues for them. Um, exercise therapy um, has also been started to be trialled um, and on the face of it, it seems like a good idea and I think a lot of us recommend this. Um, in terms of traumatic brain injury itself, there isn't a lot of evidence that it does actually help with fatigue. There is some evidence in stroke uh, that it does assist with fatigue, uh, but it's still an area that, that needs further investigation. Uh, light therapy, um, where people get exposed to blue light, um, has shown also a little bit of promise in helping fatigue, um, but Unfortunately, it seems that the effects don't seem to last beyond when people stop using the, the light therapy. So maintenance of the effects um, has been limited in some early studies. So this is why our group has turned to cognitive behaviour therapy um, to try and look at treating some of these issues. So for those of you who don't know CBT, I'm sure you've heard of it, but um, so it's really a talk-based therapy. Um, where the focus is, is trying to change patterns of behaviour and patterns of thinking that are contributing to symptoms um, and to, with the aim of improving or reducing symptoms, improving the person's function and quality of life. <coughs> so CBT has been around for a long time now. We know it's effective in treating a, a wide range of emotional and health-related conditions. Um, and importantly, it has shown that in uh, the general population, it has been effective for treating sleep problems like insomnia, uh, but also fatigue in chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, but at the moment, there's limited evidence that uh, CBT is effective in treating these problems in people with ABI. So CBT is you know, a somewhat cognitively demanding therapy, and we can't assume that um, it, it necessarily will be uh, efficacious if people have these cognitive issues. So this is why um, we embarked on a, a trial to look at uh, CBT for treating sleep and fatigue problems to see if it was effective in uh, people with stroke or TBI. So this was led by um, our doctoral student, Sylvia Nguyen. Um, and we uh, conducted a, a randomised controlled trial involving 39 people with either a stroke or TBI. Um, and there were a range of severities from mild to, to quite severe.
Um, so they presented with either uh, having poor sleep quality or fatigue, uh, and most of them had both of these complaints. Uh, the CBT um, involved eight sessions, um, and that was compared to a treatment as usual group who, did, who just got whatever they were normally getting in terms of their therapy. For some of them that was nothing, for some of them they were still involved in rehab um, as well. Uh, so the CBT was delivered by Dana, myself and Kate, so neuropsychologists. Um, and importantly, the treatment, and we think this is an important part of it, focused both on the sleep problems and the fatigue problems. Um, because they co-occur so frequently, we thought that was quite important. So we'll unpack the treatment uh, in a little bit later in the talk, but broadly speaking, what we were aiming to do is to change um, patterns of sleep um, and patterns of activity during the day, but also changing people's misconceptions about sleep and fatigue and how best to manage them, because a lot of people develop ideas about the best way to manage these uh, issues, which may not actually be helping them. And often it was that changing their ideas about the best way to manage things, which was really important to lead to behavior change. Um, so we've also been doing CBT uh, for other issues such as anxiety and depression. And, and what is clear is that you really need to adapt CBT for people with cognitive impairments. Um, you have to simplify a lot of the materials. You have to provide repetition. You need a lot more visual handouts and reminders um, and a lot more active planning. So when we delivered the therapy, we, we did modify it quite a bit to suit our group. Um, and Dana and I will talk a bit more about how we did that when we give you some of the descriptions of the treatment. Um, so all I'll say about this slide is that, yeah, so a mix of people with TBI and stroke, most of them were further down the track. Um, so on average, at least two years post-injury. We did have some people who were earlier, but most of these people were further down the track. So, um, I just want to briefly present some of the results. Um, so here we have uh, their, their sleep outcomes. So baseline is before they started treatment, two months is after they finished the, the intervention, and four months is a two month follow up. So up the top we have a measure of sleep quality, and down the bottom we have a measure of insomnia symptoms, and lower scores represent better sleep, essentially. And what you can see is that the CBT group in blue improve at a much faster rate than the treatment as usual group in terms of both sleep quality um, and insomnia symptoms. But probably the most important thing was it, it, the difference was maintained at follow-up and actually was increasing in terms of the effect. So CBT, CBT is a skill-based program. We're really teaching people new skills and habits um, and it's potentially that over time these can actually become more effective. When we looked at the fatigue outcomes, they weren't as strong, but there definitely were some improvements. Um, we had two different measures of fatigue, um, and unfortunately they showed different things in the two different groups. Um, but we do think that the fatigue might be slightly different in people with TBI and stroke. Um, with a lot of the stroke cases, there was a greater physical component than in the TBI group, um, and it's possible that that explain some of the differences because um, the two different measures might be picking up different things. So overall there was an effect and, and some of these effects were maintained at follow-up, um, but it, there were some things we need to unpack and understand.
Although we weren't actively treating anxiety and depression, we had quite large effects for in terms of improving their mood. Um, so both uh, their anxiety and their, their depressive symptoms reduced across the treatment and on follow-up. Um, so it seems that this treatment was also addressing those secondary factors, which is likely to help their sleep and fatigue. So in summary, the, the CBT did seem to have a strong effect on their, their sleep. So we we're focusing really on uh, insomnia and hypersomnia primarily. Um, there was some reduction of fatigue, but it was a bit more complex in terms of understanding what was going on, which we need to unpack a bit more. Um, there were secondary improvements in their mood, but most importantly, these effects were maintained, and that's what we're really looking for in a treatment like this. Um, but really, I think um, what we're going to do is unpack the treatment a bit more to give you a sense of actually what we're doing. Um, so I'm going to hand over to Dana, who's going to uh, talk a bit about that. Cool. Now? <laughs> now? <laughs> or am I doing the first? Uh, no, either way. <laughs> Shall I keep going? <laughs> well, seamless, seamless. Okay. Um, so we had eight sessions, but we essentially we had six modules um, of intervention. So each module focused on a particular aspect of either sleep or fatigue. Um, and importantly, these were interspersed throughout the whole treatment. So we we're concurrently trying to treat both uh, issues. Um, and as I talked about what the focus was. So um, this is what the modules looked like, um, and just to, we're not going to go through it module by module, but we're going to focus um, on, um, Dana's going to talk a bit about assessment and formulation, um, and then talk about specifically about the fatigue interventions, and then I'm going to talk about the sleep interventions themselves. But this is what the program looked like um, as, uh, across the whole uh, uh, eight sessions. Um, we also ended with a, a review of therapy and, and relapse prevention, which is really a core part of CBT, is giving people strategies to avoid relapsing. Now I'll hand over to Dan. <laughs> okay, so um, as Adam said, I'm gonna talk now a little bit about um, assessing um, where people are at when they start the intervention um, and setting the goals, coming up with a formulation and then leading into the fatigue interventions. So um, as part of the study, but in general in clinical practice, this is also a good idea, um, we did do a range of different uh, psychometric assessments of fatigue and insomnia. So that included um, measures of sleep and fatigue as Adam um, described before. Um, I haven't got copies of them on these slides, but I'm happy to send them to you if you um, would like copies of them. Um, and you know, that we, as Adam presented in, um, in our research, we found that they were sensitive to, to change the fatigue measures in different populations, but um, the sleep uh, ones you know, have been shown to pick up that improvement. So good to use in clinical practice also, I think. Um, so we also then, um, when we start therapy, uh, we did a clinical interview to assess their experience of fatigue and sleep disturbance um, during their daily lives and get a good picture of what their pattern tend to be during the day and, and their um, routines of sleep at night or, or lack thereof. Um, and in doing that, we really wanted to explore um, how the brain injury um, and other factors associated with their fatigue and sleep difficulties were um, contributing to the whole picture. So things like their mood, uh, any pain that they're experiencing and what their activity levels were like during the day. Um, so we got a really good thorough picture of, of what their day looks like. 
Um, then we'd set SMART goals. So um, these tended to be particularly, um, a lot of people came into the, to this program wanting to increase their activity um, and do more. And so um, sometimes that was about kind of reshaping that to look at what activities were most important to them and, and looking at goals for enhancing the quality of what they were doing rather than the amount. Um, so that was, um, I'll show you an example of that in a moment. Um, and as part of that, we're also looking at um, importance and confidence ratings, uh, which is a concept kind of borrowed from motivational interviewing. So um, we would ask them to rate out of 10 how important it was for them to make changes to improve their sleep and fatigue um, and how confident they were to make those changes. So um, a pretty common pattern would be that they would be um, rating their importance quite high so that it was important to them to feel less tired and, and to sleep better. Um, but they weren't always very confident that they could make the changes necessary to do that. Um, and then uh, also um, we would set in the first, um, after the first session, set them a homework task to fill out sleep and activity diaries, which we'd then use in the second session to look at what their patterns um, were and, you know, sort of um, identify targets for the intervention. So. Um, the formulation is a really key aspect of CBT. You really want to be identifying um, all the background factors and triggers that are contributing to their symptoms and then all the, um, in particular, the, the factors that are maintaining um, their symptoms. And it's the maintaining factors that we really target in CBT. So this is an example of a formulation that um, is, might be quite typical of somebody who's experiencing insomnia. Um, so in, at the top there in the different coloured um, squares, I don't know if you can see that very well, but um, there's four different categories of triggers. So we've got social in red, um, so things like uh, unemployment and less social activity might mean that there's just um, less going on for them socially, they're less connected with people. Um, so in the health category in green, shoulder pain and medication might be contributing to, you know, that um, lying awake at night in pain or medication might be affecting um, their sleep cycle. Emotional, um, so perfectionism or being a warrior, um, this was really common in the people that came through the study. Uh, so a lot of people coming in with being used to um, a very active, busy lifestyle and uh, it was very difficult for them to adjust their expectations of what they should be able to achieve during the day following a brain injury or a stroke. Um, so very common pattern that we saw. Um, and then environmental demands, so lots of chores. So you know, often after a brain injury or stroke, um, there might have been just um, a, a work reduction or stopping of work, and which meant that there's more domestic duties to be done at home. And so sometimes there was a sense of being a bit overwhelmed by all the things that needed to be done and worked out at home. Um, so then down the bottom, uh, maintaining factors. So. Um, so in relation to the presenting symptoms of insomnia, so that might be problems getting to sleep or waking up in the middle of the night and not being able to get back to sleep. So then at the top of the circle there, you've got sleeping in to catch up on sleep. So let's say this person's um, laying awake for a long time, um, trying to get to sleep. They don't get to sleep till two o'clock in the morning and then they sleep in till 11 or 12 to, to catch up on that. Um, then they might worry about their daytime functioning if they haven't had enough sleep. I think oh, I'm not going to be able to manage all the things I'm supposed to do today. Um, so they then, as a consequence, do less. So they don't do as much. Um, they think they won't be able to achieve as much. Then they feel guilty about that, um, feel quite hopeless about themselves. Um, they um, 
feel exhausted from worrying. So you know, that emotional energy that gets expended from worrying about what you need to do and what you haven't done um, is quite exhausting. And so they might take a nap and then they might wake up feeling quite unrefreshed and guilty about wasting time. Often naps and rests are viewed as quite a waste of time in people who are used to being perfectionistic um, and active. And then so because of that, they might drink more caffeine to feel more alert um, and worry about the night's sleep ahead. Um, so then when they go to bed, they're tossing and turning and worrying about getting enough sleep and then the cycle continues, yeah? So then you can see in that a number of different um, factors that are contributing to maintaining that pattern that you might be able to target in, in CBT. Um, and so I'll go through that in a moment. This is a, um, a, a specific case example of somebody that I did actually see for, um, and give this program to. So Sue, um, I'm going to describe in a bit more detail because you'll see a couple of videos of me working with Sue. Um, so she was a 73-year-old woman who suffered a left parietal stroke um, three years before she came and did the treatment program. Um, she was high average pre-morbidly and had a really active lifestyle. So she was a um, phys ed teacher and also ran a number of different physical kind of education programs for older adults and different populations. Um, she was a, one of these women who would spend their whole life helping other people. Um, and so she was widowed um, a few years earlier. Her children um, were spread about all around Australia and were quite busy, so she didn't see them a lot, but was, um, she did have a good relationship with them. And so she lived alone. Um, so she was, that was one thing that she um, identified as a factor that in that it was up to her to do everything at home. There wasn't anyone else to share the load with. She did play a lot of bridge and golf. Um, so she was uh, quite busy during the day doing those things. She tried as much as possible to keep her days quite full. Um, and then she would usually crash at night um, at around seven o'clock, fall asleep in front of the TV. Um, so then when she woke up and went to bed, it was then hard to get back to sleep because she's already had a fair bit of sleep in front of the TV. Um, if she was tired, she sometimes napped during the day. Um, otherwise, usually she would rest by actually doing quite active things like emailing, doing computer games or watching TV. And that was a really common pattern that of um, people that we saw in the study was that their concept of rest was actually not very restful. So they would be doing things like playing, you know, word games on the phone or um, doing crosswords or, you know, getting on the computer and doing something and that to them, even watching TV, you know, what they would consider a rest break. Um, whereas, you know, that they were activities that they were still cognitively demanding. They were still using quite a lot of cognitive functions to, to do that and had to focus their attention and um, process words and problem solving and, and so on. So um, she was having difficulty getting to sleep and she would often wake up during the night for up to two hours and lie there tossing and turning. Um, she had some pain from a previous elbow injury. She drank about six to seven cups of tea a day, another trap where people often don't realise the caffeine content in tea and have a lot of tea um, that they don't sort of process as being, um, having any effect on, on their wakefulness. Um, and then, yeah, her baseline scores on these uh, initial measures, she was, had very poor sleep quality, clinically significant fatigue, and the impact of that fatigue was severe. So this is her sleep diary from the first week um, after the first session of therapy. So um, you can, I'll just pick out the fact that she had quite a varied um, sleep pattern. She wasn't going to bed at a very consistent time um, and she was having quite a variable amount of sleep. 
Um, her sleepiness during the day was generally reasonably high, particularly when she didn't have um, very much sleep and she was waking um, a fair bit during the night. Um, so not an ideal um, pattern of sleep. And then um, this is her activity diary. So this is just an example from one day, just to highlight that you know, she would really fill her time by, um, you know, so she had a bridge group, bridge lesson in the morning, then she had an art lesson. Um, then she came home and um, did her emails. Um, she, she crushed for 30 minutes um, at that point because her fatigue levels were up to nine out of 10 after all that activity. And then um, she went out again at night and did more bridge. Um, and was quite tired then too. So, <laughs> <laughs> not very surprising that she had a fair bit of fatigue. So, um, this is um, the formulation that I shared with Sue, um, and you'll see me doing that in a moment. I just wanted to, I won't go through the maintaining factors because you'll see me doing that on the video um, with her. Um, so, but at the top there, there's, um, you can see in the social category, the fact that yeah, her best friend actually is living in Queensland, so her really close group um, weren't, weren't living close by, so she didn't see them very often, um, and her family had limited availability, so socially she wasn't quite as um, connected as she would have liked. Um, her health, so she obviously had the stroke and she had the pain from the shoulder injury and her medications, she was having some statins which were messing with her a little bit. Um, and then uh, emotionally she had some occasional stress, particularly from um, things like her, uh, her strata title and things, she had a few landlord issues. Um, and also just loneliness, um, she was you know, feeling quite lonely at times. And then um, living on her own in terms of environmental demands, she had a lot of responsibilities. So now I'm going to show you a video of me describing with her the maintaining factors. Um, so this is a real therapy session, warts and all. Um, so I'll just I might need to, to go to the yeah. computer. Do me do that. That's all right. Um. Mm. 
and help on Saturday night. He used to get the most stupidest person I knew. Mm. And I thought, and I know mm. like, well, I'm not anymore. Mm. Just nothing. Yeah. And, so, yeah. and the fact that you've let go of worry about those things, I think is really adaptive. You know, that's, that's, you know, you've had to kind of, you know, kind of be faced with the fact that you can't do all those things that you used to do and fulfill all those roles. And so worrying about that is like not going to change that. It's just going to cause emotional energy. And so, you know, letting yourself let go of caring about some of those things has been helpful because it means you're not spending excess emotional energy on it. Um, well, I suppose, you know, it's, it would, I imagine, trickling from time to time and that kind of pattern is still there in you a little bit. An example this morning, I'm riding quite slowly in the wind and some people have got electric bikes, so they mm-hmm. whiz past, but then someone else just whiz past. In the old days, I would have been up the front. <laughs> And I said, yeah, okay, all right, I'll yeah. see you later, you know. Yeah. yeah. And someone actually commented, oh, you know, your gears could be done. And I said, no, I was in the right gear. Yeah, I'm just doing these. And she said, oh, okay, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 So, in that moment, do you think there was a little tension? Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. 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 yeah, of course. Yeah. So then you countered that immediately with a, no, well, this is how it is. Yeah. Which will then 
affect how well you can go into deep sleep after that. Yeah. And so then you'll, um, you know, and if you disrupt the sleep, you feel tired in the morning. How does that? The old beginning sound pretty much nailed. Okay. <laughs> okay. So um, I think that sort of process of sharing the formulation is a really key kind of um, part of setting the scene for therapy because you can see she's noticed that I've described the situation in a way that resonates with her, um, which helps her feel like we're kind of on the same page and I understand what's going on for her. Um, and then also it provides a, a rationale for the treatment. So um, she had this goal to be um, not watching as much TV and increasing her activity um, in other ways. So she wanted to be doing more art and gardening um, and you know, seeing her friends more often as opposed to kind of um, crashing at home in front of the TV. And um, she, she was in the category of feeling that that was a really important change to make but not very, being very confident about making it. Um, in terms of the things that, um, so when we do those importance and confidence ratings, um, we use a motivational interviewing technique of saying, okay, so her importance rating I think was eight out of 10. And I said, um, or let's say her confidence rating I think was six out of 10, it's a better example. Um, and I said, um, uh, you know, so what makes it a six out of 10 rather than say a four? And so she said, well, I know that um, if I'm kind of told to do something or if you're kind of suggesting a treatment program to me, then I'll follow through with it. I'll do, I'll do what I say that I'm going to do. Um, and in terms of what will help it bring it up um, higher than six out of 10, she said, well, the things that probably get in the way is I might be too tired to, to do it. So um, they, that was the main barrier for her is just that concern that um, her fatigue itself would prevent her from actually following the treatment program. Um, so, but with this kind of, she, you can see she's quite articulate and she, um, her language function is quite intact. So that, from a point of view of doing therapy, um, there wasn't, a, I was using quite, you know, kind of high level vocabulary. I wasn't adapting the way I described quite high level concepts very much. But, you know, of course, this isn't all of our treatment population, you know, for a, a young guy with, um, you know, uh, not as articulate um, uh, verbal skills. You, you would need to be describing some of those concepts in, in a different way. Uh, and I'll talk a bit, a bit more about adapting that therapy um, in, a, in a moment. So now I'm just going to um, work through some of the modules on fatigue interventions. And these are kind of um, spread throughout the program. Um, the module three and five are the main um, uh, modules that focus on, on fatigue in our, uh, in our manual. Um, but um, the relaxation techniques from the sleep module I think are also very relevant for the fatigue management. And also um, in the, uh, the second module, we do a bit of psychoeducation about the body battery, which I'm going to show you in a moment. And that also is crucial, I think, with the fatigue intervention. So I'll go through each of these elements now. So as I mentioned, this body battery idea is one that I have used with every single person I've done this um, intervention with. And I think it's a really important concept to, as a base for understanding um, the notion of regular rest breaks. So um, it's the notion that your um, available energy is like a battery. So um, we all have a battery of, of a particular capacity, but after injury, um, your battery might have a more limited capacity and is also drained more quickly. So 
um, you know, it's like a kind of Audi brand battery. Um, <laughs> so um, if you drain your battery all in one go, um, it, it's also going to take longer to recharge. So a bit like if your phone goes right down to 2%, you plug that in, it's going to take longer to get to 100 than if it was at 50% and you plug it in. Um, so uh, to keep the battery working when you need it, you always um, need some in reserve. So it's a good idea to have it keep keep the battery in the green um, rather than letting it go to the red. Um, and to um, keep it in the green, it's the best way of doing that is having regular top-ups. Um, now, of course, the tech-focused people, uh, when you talk about this, say, well, if you, if you recharge your battery often, it drains, the, you know, damages the battery, and that's what you sort of say. Well, it's not exactly like a phone battery, but um, that's generally the idea. Um, so I think, yeah, just having that concept of keeping your battery in the green is... Um, immediately kind of reframes um, the idea of a rest break because you know you can see Sue we were talking about how when um, she had a rest break she felt quite uncomfortable about that she was feeling lazy and um, she just was a bit restless with the notion of resting but when you talk about resting as you know actually recharging your battery it has a more positive and kind of productive flavor to it already um, so then when you plan the initial activity program um, the key to this is really introducing um, much more regular and shorter rest breaks. So that idea of topping up your battery much more regularly. So um, as a rule of thumb, I tend to suggest, um, so you know, you use as the basis for this the activity diary that they've filled out. So you could see Sue's one, she was doing whole chunks of activity without any rest in between. Um, and so to, to address that, um, you, I, my general rule of thumb that I use is um, five minutes of rest for every hour of activity. And that includes both physical and mental activity because, you know, mental activity is, you know, crucial as well. That, and it's something that often people don't think about as something that should be tiring, but in fact it is extremely tiring, as we know, for people with um, a brain injury. So, um, so it's not always possible to have five minutes of rest every hour. So, you know, if you're in the middle of a bridge game, um, and your partner's there and waiting for you to have a turn, it's not always you know, um, feasible to, to have a break in the middle of that. So that's where I think using that rule of thumb flexibly is important. So you know, if you can't have a rest on the hour, then you might have 10 minutes every two hours or 15 minutes every three hours, but trying not to go much more than two or three hours without having a, a rest break. So this, is, this initial plan, you, you do have to kind of be quite specific about what the strategies are going to be to actually um, trigger the person to start and stop their rest. Because particularly for someone like Sue, she's not used to doing this regularly. It's not part of her general pattern. Um, and you know, it's easy to then just get carried away with whatever you're normally doing and, and not stop and rest. So that's where using um, some strategies like alarms or reminders um, you know, is sometimes quite important because Otherwise, it just won't happen. Um, but this, I think, acts a little bit like a script. And for people who are quite perfectionistic and like to, you know, like to do what they're told um, by an expert, um, then it's it, um, it it can be quite helpful because it's like, well, this this is your prescription for, for what to do with your rest breaks, um, and it and it also actively targets the potential barriers to um, introducing those rest breaks. So, and then um, in, the, in the session after that, once they've had a go with, uh, you know, um, trying out those rest breaks, um, you then need to review and see how often they've managed to actually implement them. 
Um, and so this is an, a, a little table to help guide you know, the percent of success and, and the potential reasons for, for non-achievement um, and then what you might do in response to that. So sometimes it's about actually, um, you know, when they have, they, they might have thought about rest, but they've sort of thought, oh, no, nah, I'll be right. Or I don't, it, it's still that sort of um, entrenched belief of rest is unproductive um, might get in the way. And so they're, you know, the beliefs about rest you might need to address as the next port of call. Um, or, um, you know, there might be just forgetting to, to, like it's just to sort of not in the habit, so they've forgotten to implement it. So there some mem memory strategies or organisational strategies um, might need to come into play a bit more. And then um, it's also, you might need to sort of um, work out the balance of physical and mental activity too. So if they're doing each of those in long chunks, spreading them out in um, having more of a balance of physical and mental activity also might um, be useful. Um, and so in um, working out the best way to rest, as I mentioned, a lot of people tend to use screens or other mental activities to rest um, naturally. Um, I'm guilty of that myself, saying a bit of words with friends or something like that, um, scrolling through Facebook. Um, so, um, but it's actually not very uh, relaxing um, and still quite mentally stimulating for um, many people with a brain injury. So I think it's, I see it as um, a skill that you're introducing is actually learning how to relax uh, and truly give yourself a rest. And so for that, um, the, we often, well, uh, with almost everyone that I did, I would introduce um, some relaxation techniques. And in particular, um, I think progressive muscle relaxation tends to be a really useful one to do with this group. Um, because it is quite, it's a bit more like a sort of physical exercise. You're going through the different parts of the body, clenching and, and relaxing it in turn. Um, so there is something for the mind to focus on, a sort of sequence of movements um, that are relaxing. And that differs from, say, a slow breathing exercise, which might last for five to 10 minutes, and it's just breathing where it's uh, easier to lose your focus and get distracted and, um, and feel a bit bored or, or, or frustrated. So um, I like using the progressive muscle relaxation for that reason. And um, I think it's in general quite useful for everyone, brain injury or not, to have a recording of that relaxation um, to use to guide them. So you can either have a recording that you've just done yourself and can give them, or um, you can actually record it in session, even on their phone <coughs> using voice memos. Um, and you know, so then they've got something to actually guide them at home because if they have to take themselves through it, it's really easy to lose track. And you know, relaxation exercises can be quite difficult and um, and quite frustrating when your mind keeps wandering and you can't keep focused on it. So the more that they've got a, a guide to follow, um, the easier it is, I think. Um, okay, so now uh, this is another little video of me working through um, some barriers to the activity rest schedule with Sue um, and also reviewing some options for rest breaks and summarising her homework. So it's sort of addressing some of the sort of logistics, I suppose, of making sure the activity program is in place. And that's another Yeah, but I think often after coming up to Australia, 
if that level activity is actually before that then it's a good one mm -hmm. um, so that will mean what gets that battery life around there mm -hmm. so um, yeah that, that makes a lot of sense what happened at that um, and so good you know yeah it's a good illustration of the importance of that regularly recharging um, so, so that then you know at night you're not right down at five percent battery level and crashing in front of the TV and then not going to sleep later. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so anything that we can do to brainstorm how this could be incorporated more into the study? No, because I was at social it was pretty hard to sit there and meditate thinking of the future. So sometimes um, some things that I suggested are even you know just go to the bathroom. Um, all, all my clients you can, you can imagine in the bathroom all over Melbourne just having a few breaths. Like you know to do a full ten minutes meditation or anything, but even just you know just sitting and just taking a few breaths. You know like eight breaths. Um, it's just a sort of sort of mini pause. Um, that's sometimes enough just to recharge just a little bit, you know, and yeah. just a little top up. Um, so I wonder whether that might be something, you know, just, and even if you're getting in the car to go to the next place, again, it doesn't have to be a long one, but just a minute of. Yeah, well, that works that day yeah. in the car. In the car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 That actually works well. Yeah, good. Um, I've never thought of re withdrawing from social situation, but I suppose. So, you know, there's no reason why you can't. Yeah, and sit in the bathroom all the time. You don't even have to say that's what you're doing, you can just stay in the bathroom um, and just do it while you're there. Uh, so, yeah, well, you can, you've got a few options. I suppose you could do media relaxation TV, sit, sit and relax on the couch, um, music, and get up to the loose or maybe talk about having a bath or. Mm -hmm. And the train music, yeah. Okay, well, that's another thing to add to the. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, probably not something that you know of in the morning, so maybe that's something after bridge, maybe, you know, it's a nice sort of relaxing thing to do. Something you sort of wind down to upstairs. Okay, does that sound like it's going to work? What, what might be another I've been quite impressed with yeah. the times I've. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, we're doing eight weeks, mm. and I'm already thinking this might be working. You know yeah, what I mean? So, right. yeah. If I could keep going on the same range, yeah. then yeah. my head's a great reason why you can't be terrific. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. But I can't imagine how much it's going to So, anyway. So, refining it all. So, you've noticed that sometimes it's harder to squeeze in the rest of others. Mm. And so then it's, you know, finding a way through those barriers. So, you know, taking those little opportunities when you can go to the toilet or whatever, and just trying to do it in a really short space in the afternoon, so you relaxation. They're the things that will help refine this place. Yeah, so it's great that you have noticed the difference because that will keep it going and help you know, oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. self-motivate you then.
If only they were all that straightforward. <laughs> um, so, but I think really crucial to be doing that um, work on ba potential barriers to implementing these breaks and um, and also the, the gender setting and, and summarising of homework at the end are really, um, really, really important elements of CBT so that the session is quite structured and it's clear what you, you're setting out to achieve in each one and at the end you're reviewing that and making sure the plans for the homework are really clear and there's a um, clear rationale for that and there's a plan for how to implement it and remember to do it. Um, so I'm aware that I'm chewing up some time so I'm just going to go through this fairly briefly but um, so you know in, in restructuring the thoughts and many of the thoughts that come through um, in uh, this work are around you know resistance I suppose to changing the entrenched patterns so um, and you know the the rigidity cognitive rigidity that comes along with brain injury means it's sometimes quite hard to shift some of those beliefs um, so you do have to be quite careful in how you go about doing that and doing it in a way that's different to um, what it would be for people without a brain injury so here are just some brief ideas for um, adapting some of the uh, cognitive restructuring techniques that um, are a core part of CBT. Um, so in, in traditional CBT, you know, there's the idea that you're, you're using kind of Socratic questioning to elicit um, uh, the thoughts from the client and get them to come up with alternatives. Um, but that's not always possible uh, in a brain injured um, person that you know, coming up with um, different ways of thinking about something in, in a flexible way can be really challenging. So that's where um, the role of the therapist sometimes needs to be a little bit more directive or proactive in helping the client and prompt the client to come up with a different way of thinking about the situation. So um, I'd sort of like to think of that process as a bit of a scaffolding or increased level of structure um, as needed. So you, you, you might start off with just asking an open question about, is there a different way to think about this? Um, and then gradually um, provide a little bit more prompting as needed. If they can't come up with anything or there's no, it's quite stuck on a certain way of thinking. You know, if you had a friend in the same situation, what would you say to them? Sort of st stepping outside your own experience to see it from a different perspective. Um, then offering a choice of one or two other thoughts. Well, what about if you think about it in this way? Or how would it feel if you thought this? Um, and so you're offering a couple of options. And then finally, just directly offering a specific thought that you think um, might come in handy. So I've got an idea about a different way of thinking about this. Would you like to hear it? So you're still asking for their permission. You're still involving them in the process, but you are also more directly suggesting a particular thought um, about it. So just to put that into context, here are some sort of common unhelpful thoughts about, um, particularly about fatigue. Um, and so, just take a moment to have a think about how you might restructure these. So if somebody that you were working with um, expressed these thoughts, like when I feel like okay, I need to push myself to get everything done, Rest, resting on the couch is lazy. If I don't do all the things I used to do, I'm worthless. Um, if I, I need to keep my brain active or I won't get better. Um, if I can't do the entire job in one go, there's no point in starting. And if I miss out on doing things, I'll lose my friends. Okay, so these thoughts that you've heard clients express, yeah? So um, it's good to have in your kind of toolkit some different takes on these thoughts to, so that you do have something to offer. If a client is stuck on this perspective, you've got some things to offer. If it comes to directly suggesting alternative perspective, you have, have one to come up with. So just have a moment to think what you might say in response to these. 
And these are what I have come up with. There's no right or wrong answer, but here's some options. So if a rest is unproductive, instead rest recharges me. So again, coming back to that body battery idea, it's, it's kind of giving you that fuel. If I do less, I can do each thing better. So quality rather than quantity. I need to give my brain a rest or I won't get better. So that rest as, as something that your brain needs to repair itself. One step at a time is better than none. So you do get a lot of people kind of seeing a whole stack of things to be, that need to be done and going, oh, I just cannot do that. It's just overwhelming, the thought of doing it. So breaking that right down into smaller steps and, and thinking about each step as, a, as an achievement. And then um, if I do things when I'm tired, I'll crash afterwards and miss out on more things. So that cost of um, pushing yourself too much. Yeah? Okay, so just very briefly, um, the final um, uh, part of this fatigue intervention is about the cognitive and physical fatigue and some um, strategies around that. So it's about kind of... Um, with physical fatigue, finding some different ways of doing things, making sure that the tools that you need are all there, that you're organised for the task that you need. Um, did this with an electrician, sort of, you know, with a process that he needed to follow and, and we worked through all the tools that he needed and, and the steps that he needed to follow, which meant that he wasn't kind of going all over the place and walking back and forth from his car all the time to try and, um, you know, get himself organised, which is tiring. And then with mental fatigue, um, you know, really breaking tasks down into steps, ticking them off as you go, using memory strategies. So for one of my clients, really um, learning how to use her phone um, and putting in calendar alerts was one of the most active ingredients for the interventions because she um, was just spending a lot of time trying to remember what she needed to do and just having that trigger um, helped her feel much more in control um, and less tired with the effort of trying to remember. Um, and then also allowing enough time to do things. So sorry, I've skipped through that a little bit quickly, but I do want to now hand over back to Adam so we can talk about sleep. And I'm sure you might have questions, but we'll perhaps save them to the end. Thanks. Uh, is everyone happy if I go for, uh, for about 10 minutes? Yeah? yeah. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. Um, so, so our sleep intervention was mainly focused on insomnia because that was the main problem people were presenting with. So difficulties falling asleep or maintaining a sleep. So uh, CBT for insomnia or CBTI is really the first line treatment if anyone just presents with insomnia in the general population. Um, and so these are the list of techniques that would form part of CBTI and really we just used those and adapted them for our group. So I'm just gonna go through probably the key ones just given the time. So sleep education actually was really important in validating the symptoms, but also reducing some of the anxiety because anxiety about not sleeping becomes this huge barrier. You don't want people to get into bed and think, oh my God, I'm not gonna, have, I'm not gonna get to sleep again. It's gonna be a terrible night and that's really gonna uh, inhibit their ability to fall asleep. So just two things that were quite reassuring for people. First thing was that it's actually quite normal to wake up through the night. Because sleep goes in cycles and phases, it goes from lighter stages down into deeper stages and then comes back into lighter and that cycles throughout the night. Um, so when you come up into a lighter stage of sleep, a lot of people actually wake up but then fall straight back asleep. Now people who aren't used to that start to equate any waking during the night as a sign of poor quality sleep. When actually if people can fall back asleep uh, easily, then the quality of sleep actually can be okay and they're quite reassured by that. The second thing is, um, Deep sleep is 
are seen as the restorative aspect of sleep that restores our bodily functions. Now most deep sleep happens in the first two or three cycles of the night. So if people, even people get four or five hours of sleep, they're still getting most of that restorative aspects of sleep. Again, that can be reassuring for people that even if they're getting that, um, they can still get those, that restoration. Another key thing to educate people about is sleep inertia. So this is this idea of when you first wake up, you can feel quite groggy and not quite with it. And we all feel that. Um, but after a brain injury, this can be really uh, extended. So people can talk about feeling this way for half an hour or an hour or even longer after they first wake up. Now the issue is that people, um, when they wake up and feel that inertia, feel like that must mean I haven't had a good night's sleep, I need to sleep in more, I have to go back to bed. Um, but often uh, a lot of people say that if they can push through that first half hour or an hour, they really wake up and they feel much better. So what we're trying to educate people, this is a normal thing, a normal process, and maybe if we can set you up with a routine to get you through that first hour, you're actually gonna feel much better. Um, and in the end, um, people talk about, um, actually sometimes they sleep in and it actually doesn't make them feel any better anyway. And they feel like they've actually done less with the day and they feel worse. So I'm sure everyone's heard about sleep hygiene. So really this is just a collection of uh, habits, uh, things to do with the environment that you sleep in to help promote better sleep. Um, if you went to probably a GP or someone, that, that's the first thing that they would give you is some sleep hygiene tips or if you Googled it. Um, what we know about chronic insomnia is that that alone isn't that effective in treating insomnia. Um, but in our clients, what we found is because potentially the sleep issues weren't so entrenched or it wasn't their only problem, they actually hadn't had a lot of that basic sleep hygiene to date. And so we found that some of these basic sleep hygiene techniques were actually quite effective for our group. So in the red box is just a list of the common things that we would go through with people. Um, and again, if you looked it up on the web, this is what you would find. So sleep hygiene was really our first intervention because the, these were the, the least invasive things that we would do with people. Um, interestingly, a lot of these things are actually surprising to people. They hadn't thought of them. Um, there was some reluctance to use some of them if they uh, were different to what they would normally do. So I had a guy who liked to have a few whiskeys before bed because he felt it would send him off to sleep. Um, but then he would wake up after an hour or two and would find it difficult to get back to sleep. And we talked about the impact of alcohol on sleep. And so you had to often provide a lot of justification and rationale around why you would change these before people would uh, implement them. The other thing is you have to spend quite a bit of time planning how they're going to do it. So I think uh, in a, a group of brain injury clients, um, just giving them a list of, of strategies often um, may not be that effective and you have to spend some time working out how you're going to implement that. So for example, not looking at the clock is something which uh, we'd often recommend because people then get anxious if they're not sleeping and they keep looking and get more anxious. But how to stop yourself from doing that is, is something that you need to plan and work out because sometimes just turning the clock around isn't enough. You might need to actually take the clock out of the room. So um, people who can't sleep, uh, who have insomnia, start to associate being in bed with fear of not sleeping. And that can lead to arousal and perpetuates the problem of falling asleep. So stimulus control is doing 
um, everything you can to strengthen the link between being in bed and being asleep versus being in bed and, and trying to sleep, being awake. So this includes a range of strategies. Um, I want to focus on two. So the first one is only going to bed when you feel sleepy. So rather than prescribe a time that you should go to bed, we talk about a window of going to bed. So it might be, you know, let's go to bed between 10.30 and 11.30, but wait till you actually feel sleepy before you turn the light off. Because if you turn the light off and you're still awake and aroused, then it's going to be harder to fall asleep. Um, I'll talk about three. <laughs> uh, consistent, having a consistent wake-up time, though, we do think is important because that helps um, set the circadian rhythm for the day. And so if people have varying, uh, varying wake-up times, it can interfere with your circadian rhythm, which is a key uh, physiological process that impacts on sleep. Um, the last one, which is really important in terms of this approach, is that if you're not sleeping and you get into bed and you're trying to sleep, you have to actually get out of bed after about 20 minutes. Go do something else in another room, read, uh, listen to some music, do a relaxation exercise, and then when you feel sleepy, go back to bed. So most clients like the idea of the consistent wake-up time because they felt like it got them going for the day. They could then get on with their goals. Um, but getting out of bed was another story. Um, and I don't know if you've ever tried to do this, but it's quite hard to motivate yourself to get out of bed when it's particularly cold. And, um, and often people would think, well, if I'm not in bed, there's no chance I'm gonna sleep. Um, but then you talk and look at their sleep diary and say, well, you're awake for two hours in bed. Maybe it's worth trying something different. Now, the clients who were willing to try this actually found it was really successful. And sometimes only had to try it once uh, for it to work. But it also took the pressure off this. So they, they felt like they now had something they could do if they were lying awake. So it sort of had this anxiety uh, reducing effect as well. Um, it was also very important to uh, engage the partner if there was one um, because a barrier for some people getting up is that they don't want to disturb their partner um, but of course the partner is often wanting them to get out of the bed because they're tossing and turning um, but if, you have, if the partner was able to say oh look you've been here for a while why don't you get up and go read in the, the next room then that was actually quite uh, effective. So um, a common thing with people with sleep problems is that they'll often try and sleep in to catch up on sleep um, or they'll nap a lot during the day to, to make up for that lost sleep, which, uh, as I mentioned before, interferes with things like circadian rhythm and other sleep processes. Sleep restriction is quite an invasive technique, but it involves essentially restricting the amount of time the person spends in bed. Um, so if, for example, they're only on average getting five hours a night, but they're probably in bed for eight hours trying to sleep, the, the intervention would be to actually uh, set that they're only, in, uh, they're only in bed for five hours um, for that night. So the idea is that what you're inducing is a better quality sleep. You're taking away that anxiety of trying to get to sleep. And the idea is that over time you would build up how much time they're in bed, presuming that their sleep quality has improved. Um, and in terms of chronic insomnia in the general population, this is seen as the standalone sort of gold standard of treatment. Now, if you thought they were reluctant to get out of bed, they're even more reluctant to restrict how much time, you know, that they're in bed. Um, and this was more of a second step if other things hadn't been working, because it is quite invasive. Um, 
And you also had to think about how they would manage the fatigue during the day because sometimes it could make them more tired because um, sleep does fluctuate. Sometimes people will get four hours, but other times they'll get eight. Um, so you need to plan if they're going to have a night where they're not having as much sleep, how do they manage that fatigue during the day? And that's where some of the strategies Dana talked about uh, are important to discuss. In terms of relaxation, a key really was to establish some wind down uh, period before bed where they would be more relaxed and more likely to fall into a good sleep. Um, so we'd often talk about what are you doing in the, in the last one or two hours before bedtime to help that uh, process. And that would include a range of different techniques or strategies that we would go through. But in the end, it was really important, and this is the basis of CBT, to look at what are their underlying beliefs about sleep and how they're managing it. Um, so a lot of people would have fears that if they don't have a good night's sleep, they won't cope tomorrow and you know, it'll be a complete disaster. And so that would encourage them to start looking at the clock more to make sure, you know, are they getting to sleep? and that anxiety would build and then they would actually find it harder to fall asleep. When you challenge some of those ideas and get them to think, well, actually, how did you go the next day when you didn't get, you know, you only got four hours sleep that night? And often they'll say, oh, actually, you know, it was pretty hard, but it was all right. I sort of managed, it actually wasn't too bad. They start to really challenge some of those entrenched things that they have when they're lying in bed. And that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to set up some alternative ideas uh, to lessen the, the anxiety they have when they're actually trying to fall asleep. So these beliefs around sleep and this anxiety around sleep was really common. And we've all had it when we're trying to get to sleep. Um, but in people who have chronic problems, they become intensified. So we did use a, a range of things to try and address that. And I think if you're trying to create uh, behaviour change, you really need to understand what are those beliefs underlying uh, those patterns. Um, lastly, I just want to talk about hypersomnia. So this is excessive sleep. So people who sleep for nine or ten hours or longer, yet uh, still feel very sleepy during the day. Um, we incorporate a lot of the tr interventions that we do for insomnia. Um, but key things are actually having scheduled naps during the day. So rather than uh, napping when people just feel tired, actually trying to preempt uh, those periods of sleepiness by scheduling naps. We limit them to about 50 or 30 minutes because we don't want people to fall uh, into a deep sleep and then have really extended sleep inertia when they wake up. So if they have an hour's sleep, they might feel so groggy for the next hour or two that they actually can't do anything. So we try and keep it quite short. Um, But again, addressing some of the beliefs were helpful. So um, some people will believe that they just need more and more sleep to feel better during the day, when in fact, when you look at their experience, actually sleeping longer doesn't tend to make them feel better or function better. So we try and limit that nighttime sleep, but come up with better techniques during the day to help them manage that sleepiness. And that seemed to be more effective for them. Okay. So, um, you know, our belief, and I think you know, the research has showed from what we did that CBT can be effective for treating both fatigue and sleep issues. We do think, though, it's important to treat them concurrently. Um, because there's no medications involved, it avoids some of the side effects that you can have with uh, medication-based treatments. 
Um, but with all these treatments, you know, we need to adapt them to our client group and um, if people have cognitive difficulties, you need to think how to best implement them. And so that's what you, know, you need to think about when, when you're implementing these, these techniques. So sorry I sped through that, but um, um, hopefully we have some time for questions, if there is any. Thank you very much, Marmon. <laughs> let's open it up to the floor for questions. Hi, I'm Lisa Sherry, I'm a rehab physician. I noticed at the beginning that you, um, in your actual research, you had um, pain in both groups, the treatment of Dutal and the um, CBT group. There seemed to be more pain in the treatment of Dutal group, even though that maybe wasn't uh, Yeah, so um, it's possible. Like we only had 39 people, so um, it's, it's a small enough sample that you can get some differences like that. Pain was definitely a factor for a lot of our clients and we had to, it wasn't a direct focus, but we definitely talked about it and talked about how to manage that pain when they were trying to sleep particularly um, around using relaxation. So we used the techniques that we had in the program to focus on pain. Um, I don't know, Dana had a few people. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things is that the impact of pain on sleep, there's the direct effects of just being you know, focused on the pain, but also there's the anxiety around the pain and how it's going to impact on sleep. So I think with our intervention, we did tend to focus more on that. So um, looking at the, the beliefs about um, how pain is going to impact on sleep and their daytime functioning and, and trying to sort of shift some of those and reduce some of the anxiety around the pain. Um, yeah, I mean, we didn't have the scope to do a full pain management, obviously, program within this, but you know, it's a um, it's a question that's been raised before, and it's a really crucial thing that you know I think would probably need to still happen in um, concurrently with a program like this. But um, certainly, the beliefs and the anxiety around um, pain, you know, we can address as part of this. Mm. Hi, I'm Jackie from um, I've also completed some research in this area, and the thing that I grapple with still is around outcome measures and outcome measures because it's fatigue is so multifactorial I'm just not sure that the fatigue measures that we have are accurately capturing the changes because you've obviously had some significant changes in your group and I guess I wonder both clinically and research whether we should be looking more at that activity and participation level mm -hmm. rather than you know if they're seeing changes on the fatigue scales mm -hmm. I'm not sure if you would comment on that yeah so we did record their activity levels through the diaries um, the problem is it's quite hard to get people to accurately fill those out. But I agree there are limitations with the existing measures and so we're trying to use a, a range of different things to understand what is going on with the person. And we also uh, we do exit interviews with the people as well and just ask them all, um, you know, how has this been for you in terms of your fatigue, but also your goals. So we do set out more functional goals at the start of the program to work out you know, what do you want to do if your fatigue is less. And so we, we try and focus on those as well. Yeah. But it may not be that fatigue necessarily is less, but it yes. may be that they're managing it better. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes, yep. their activities or being able to fulfill the activities that they want to be able to do. Yeah, and that's what we talk about, that it may, your symptoms actually may not be less, but you may be able to do more because you're coping better with it. Yeah, definitely. And that's why I think you, you have to look beyond symptoms and look at function as well. Yeah. I guess just having those as your key outcome measures, it's difficult then to 
It's such a th um, Jenny Ponsford often <laughs> talks about this. That just, this it's such a problematic thing to measure because it is, like mm. you say, you've highlighted that. You know, it's so, so subjective and multifactorial, and um, yeah, really difficult to pin down. We don't have a good physiological marker of, of mental fatigue, and you know, so yeah, it's really tricky. Because mm. um, clearly, your your you know your intervention has had significant results on some if not all of your mm. participants, but whether those are picked up. Yeah, and you know, it might be that the because de the depression measure, like we had a really strong um, effect on depression symptoms, and so that also can be sort of tapping into some of that apathy and sluggishness and the fatigue kind of related symptoms too. That that might be one of the yeah, the, the signifiers that fatigue is improving. Mm. My comments might sort of overlap a bit about the measures too. Thank you for a really. Um, really useful presentation for me as well. I do a lot of this sort of sleepy stuff. Some of the clients come my way as well. Um, just with the, the measures, I was interested. Sometimes in my clinical work, I have previously used actigraphy. I find with the sleep diaries, while that gives me a really good clinical a sense of what the client thinks is happening, I've had cases where um, uh, hiring actigraphy for a couple of weeks has then been able to you know, get a lovely graph and show the client, well actually, while well, you feel you're awake for seven hours a night, it turns out, look here, you actually didn't move between this and that time. And that in itself can be quite helpful. Mm. Um, and also then for my sleep, you know, sleep timing stuff, but I haven't found anyone, the, the people we use for actigraphy have been useless recently, so I need to find out if there's anyone else who can um, work yeah, with getting the patient. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so I wondered a little bit, but I mean, I sort of like you talk. I think, well, actually, it's it's the client's experience of it. Who you know, really, it doesn't matter how many moments they're sleeping or not. It's how they feel about how they're sleeping. I think. Well, I think it's good. I think it can be helpful though to educate them. But I had, uh, or a few clients who um, had the strong belief they weren't sleeping yeah. at all. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and so I had one client who would come every week and said, "I haven't slept again for another week." So it's yeah. 20 weeks in a row I haven't slept and and so and I presented all the evidence the autigraphy and it didn't make a difference and and really we had to I tried to you know rationalize that and we, in the end we sort of shifted completely away from the sleep we sort of just moved on to function and said okay well if this is happening it sounds like nothing's changing let's just focus on what you want to do in your life and and moved away from the yeah, sleep because it, so for some people it becomes this, and I think for a lot of people it actually becomes they um, they link sleep to all their problems. Mm. They actually yes. it's particularly people who don't have insight into their, their brain injury and, and acknowledgement yeah. of it. Um, but I think sleep becomes a, a socially acceptable reason for their problems, mm. and so they tie onto well if if I fix my sleep it will be fine. Yeah. yeah. And they're the interesting ones, I think, because once you, sh even when you show them the sleep study mm. or the actigraphy, yeah. they still do not believe yeah. that their experience correlates with what mm. you can show them mm. is physiologically going on. Yeah. yeah. I had one lady who she hadn't slept for years, and it turned out that um, she would wake up every hour and look at the clock, and it would say seven, you know, ten p.m., eleven p.m., midnight. She slept with the radio on, and the news bulletin would wake her up. Hour oh, hour. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> between sleep and wake mentation that yeah. stage of sleep when you're drifting off and it's almost real but it's not quite real mm. yeah. if you wake someone up in stage one or two sleep they'll often say no no I'm, just, I'm, I'm not asleep I'm just lying here yeah. Yeah. and that's yeah. what would happen to her she'd sort of wake up slowly and then go oh god another hour another hour yeah. another hour mm. yeah. um, sorry my other just question about the idea of five minutes rest mm. for one hour physical or mental activity I love that idea I like that for myself 
with, I haven't done that so much, and I will think about incorporating that in my work. I often tend to suggest people have a rest sort of in that post-lunch, that circadian dip period, like siesta time. Mm. But I would, I sort of go for a bit of a longer yeah, lie down. I find some clients are really good. Did you really find five sleep. minutes was Just sufficient it, to look? It, it's a rule of thumb, and, and you know, not meant to be a sort of set. Yeah. Like, no, so it has to be this. Thought, but yeah, I've used it with people when I would have thought that a bit short after an hour's sometimes it's just about what's practical so you know like for somebody who's you know is working or you know doing a lot of activity during the day yeah having a nap for half an hour is not usually feasible in most workplaces or you know so yeah that's right and so and just the notion of um short and often a bit like you know the idea of snacking regularly during the day rather than having massive meals and then having a sugar high and then a crash it's it's just maintaining that really even energy level that's kind of just maintained across the day rather than going up and down and and i think um you know the nap thing so a lot of people did also need a nap and so then it's just really making sure that it's um it, it's timed for a less than 30 minutes so ideally about 20 minutes um and having a strategy to wake up after that time and you know so i i would have said you know it's not um, you don't need to ban naps altogether, but they just they do need to be at, um, I, like the most recent evidence I think is that at least kind of 10 hours before bedtime ideally, which would be just just after lunch yeah. and um, then uh, yeah no, no more than 20 minutes so ideally. Said, oh, exactly yeah but I think that's a key yeah and that's what I suppose with more severe people, you really need the input of the family mm. and the carers and support network yeah, because sometimes that needs to be them that, that yeah. makes it happen. It's very hard for mm. some people to do it on their own. Yeah. yeah. Yes, good question. So um, the, there's already some papers out and there is a manual that um, we will publish, but we're now doing, oh yeah, we can get to that. Um, so <laughs> do, you want to, do you want to talk, Adam's sort of leading this a bit So um, we're continuing the research. Um, so we have published uh, three papers based on that initial group of 39 people. Uh, Sylvia has led that. Uh, so they're available in various journals. Um, so just search for Sylvia or our names, they should come up. Or we can email them to you. Or we can email yeah. them. Um, but we're commencing on a new program now using the same uh, CBT intervention but comparing it to a, a control, an active control group. So before it was just treatment as usual. Um, but we really need to show that CBT is better than just having client contact. So often you just get a lot of benefit from seeing a professional and talking about things. So we want to show that it actually is more effective than that. So uh, we're comparing CBT to a, um, providing information about brain injury, stroke, um, but sleep and fatigue issues, but more just information versus the active CBT. Um, so if you do have any clients uh, with TBI or non-progressive uh, uh, ABIs, um, please contact us or, or Lucy is probably the best person to contact. She's the person leading the research trial. And also, um it reminded me, I wanted to just plug Brainspan. If you're not a member of Brainspan yet, please join. There's um, the website there. It's a new a multidisciplinary network for clinicians and research um, researchers in the field of brain impairment. Um, so all of you would fall in that category. Um, so yeah, we'd love, if you're not a member, um, it's just a matter of um, joining up to the Google group. And um, it's a 
hopefully good source of um, information about new research and, and things that are happening in the field, resources, things like that. So please do join. Question. Thanks very much for the great presentation. Really enjoyed it. With the sleep diaries, do you have any issues with that making people worse? Because they've got to think, well, I'm on my way, it's my sleep, and I'll do this, do that. Any of that going on? Um. I didn't get a lot of that feedback. Mm. I think we contained it to only at the mm. start and the end. I've definitely seen in clients who are doing it all the time, who become so obsessed by it that it does interfere with their sleep. So I agree. I think you need to do it in bursts to see uh, what is going on and if things are changing. Yeah. Did you get many filling it in the morning of the appointment for the whole week? <laughs> yeah. Uh, very like. We're one pen and the whole thing. Yeah. yeah. Look, I think with, with a client, yeah, <laughs> you can always tell. Um, but really engage, I think very early on, if you felt like you weren't getting reliable information, I would always call the, the partner yeah. and get their input. And particularly about, like there were clients who would come to us and say, oh no, I don't have any fatigue issues. And um, you'd talk to their partner and say, oh yeah, they just really crash, they're really tired, they're irritable, they fall asleep, you know, uh, before dinner. So getting that informant history was really important. Yeah, so I think, you know, the key with the sleep diary is to enhance awareness for the clinician and the patient about what's going on without it becoming an obsession. So, yeah, just using it sort of moderately, I suppose. And, and sometimes it just, it, um, they haven't quite realised the amount of variation in, in, in the times that they're going to sleep and waking up. So even just seeing that and, and pointing out the impact of that on circadian rhythms and things can be a helpful step. Yeah. How long were the, there were eight sessions yeah, so, yeah, I mean, an hour, but, you know, that, again, could be flexible. So if, you know, there was significant fatigue during the session, for example, like sometimes I would actually just do a relaxation, um, uh, you know, in the beginning or mid middle of the session just to break it up and give them sort of model that um, fatigue management within the session too. Um, but, yeah, in, in general, an hour. Um, so um, one talk by the um, Just a quick question about the sounds that as an exclusion, didn't we? Um, like, I think we, we yeah. had an exclusion as a major substance dependence. Mm. I mean, there was probably, yeah, there were quite a few people with like significant alcohol use um, and some with other drug use, but, you know, they, if they were really dependent, they, they were excluded. Um, the, yeah, we probably, I, I personally didn't work with a lot of people, uh, obviously an issue generally in clinical practice, but in the study, I didn't have a lot of people who were really um, dependent on, say, benzos or, you know, um, other medications or substances. So generally there's an exclusion, but um, uh, I think, I have to recall, but for some people, for example, we're taking melatonin, and mm. um, so we allowed that, but they had to be on a stable dose and had, couldn't change it throughout the study. Um, and so we talked to them at the start that, you know, if you feel like with your doctor you need to change it, then you just need to let us know and we'll work out whether you still stay in the study. Mm. But Generally, um, people... We had quite a few on sleeping medications, yeah. like, um, and they were allowed to stay on those, but just couldn't change it during the course of the study. But most people actually wanted to be off them. They didn't want to be on mm. them, and so we're happy to stop using them. Mm. Um, so I suppose we talked about, well, this might give you something that would avoid having to use those, yeah. Mm.
Thank you very much, Dana and, and Aggie. Don't forget that you can contact both Adam and Dana. Their contact details are up there.